Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. This is Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by Eric Franchi and the legendary Ronan Shields, reporter for Digiday. Ronan, thanks for being here. Hi, good day to you all. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Of course. Uh, let's do public service announcements first. So uh, you should subscribe to the Marketecture newsletter, uh, go to Marketecture TV. And because selling advertising on this podcast is too difficult for me personally, I'm lazy, I'm old, just email me if you want to advertise on this podcast. It'll be a lot easier for me. Um, we reach thousands of influencers and important people in the ad tech and martech space. All right, off to the races. So, Eric, I hear you, uh, Elon has betrayed your family again. Do you want to tell us the latest on on uh, your situation? <laughs> I didn't think we would actually talk about this. Well, first off, I'm looking forward to seeing Elon at Possible. Actually, really interested in, in, in hearing what he has to say about Twitter and ads. But, uh, yeah, the, um, the visor on uh, our Tesla fell out mid-trip on the driver's side and was, like, dangling in front of the driver <laughs> as said driver was trying to uh, arrive to their destination safely. So it was a little intense. All right. The possible conference coming up in Miami. I'm personally an investor in the conference, but yet I don't think I'm going because, once again, old, lazy. Um, That's but, unacceptable. Uh, <laughs> unacceptable. We're, we're also our, our fund uh, appearing ventures. We're an investor in the in the conference as well. It is coming together. It is looking awesome. Yolan, L. Cool J, Bon Jovi, a bunch of like CMOs there. We'll be down there do, doing a bunch of stuff. So uh, definitely, folks, if you're going, re- reach out to me. Okay, free ad for possible. <laughs> so, Ronan, uh, will you be going to Miami, or do they not put that in your expense budget at Digiday? No, no, I just put the story about it about a year back. So, uh, that's no, right, you broke the news. That's right, I remember that. That was great. No, so I won't be going, but looking forward to hear what comes out of there. I think, yeah, we have to kind of test its metal first before I get signed off from going with such things. Fair enough. So what's exciting, Ron, and what have you been covering? Well, there's no shortage of things, as always. Um, lately, I think probably the biggest thing I've covered personally is about Netflix and how it is reappraising its ad tech strategy. Obviously, it was one of the stories of the summer last year whenever it announced that it was going to pair up with Microsoft advertising, which is obviously on a bit of an upswing for its advertising strategy. And, well, basically, it emerged that they are potentially looking at other options, I'd say, without going into it too much, looking to potentially in-house that. So that spoke to a lot of interest. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the pod maybe two episodes ago. They had uh, okay. they brought on John Whittacombe, who I used to work with at Freewheel as an advisor and trying to maybe build by, don't know. Right. Is, is anything new on that story since, or you have to hold it to uh, publish something interesting? Yeah, it takes a while to get through those things. So there is other interesting things, but the minute there is something interesting to confirm, you'll read about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's no no point in holding on to a scoop, right? Yeah. So you've been in B two B trade media for a long time, um, covering advertising, marketing. You've been what? What's the long list? You've been in Adweek, Exchange Wire, uh, I mean, probably, probably probably worth mentioning. Digiday. Oh uh, yeah. The drum. Uh, the drum. The drum. Digiday. The drum. Marketing Week and Exchange Wire. He obviously had my compatriot and former headmaster Kieran O'Keefe on a number of weeks back. So. Yeah, that about cuts it. I worked at other places, but not covering the digital media landscape. 
So it would be great to get your perspective on how it's changing. Obviously, there are some folks on the extreme side will say that it, it's disappearing and it'll all be replaced by Substack or, or things like architecture, frankly, which are a different kind of media. Or there's a different point of view, which is that it's still got an important role to play and it'll be around forever. What are you seeing? What are you doing? And you know, maybe what are your colleagues looking at? Yeah. Well, look, obviously, we have different forums for getting information, right? If we just boil it down to its very constituent pieces, we've got Reddit groups. Uh, so we've got um, one of the ones that I follow is the AdOps subreddit. It's usually a good source for speaking to some people about some things that we normally wouldn't get, and they can be quite candid. They're not trying to sell you anything. Right. So good. And obviously that's where our, you know, address you know, desired audience are as well, but they go there for information that maybe you're not going to get in the likes of a digi day or an ad week, other quality publications are out there. So there's that. And then, yeah, that's a source that you have to compete with for attention and eyeballs. Right? That's how we monetize these days. Obviously, we've got Twitter as well. Ari, you obviously the foremost <laughs> Twitter uh, proponent amongst us, all things Elon aside. And um, yeah, there are other things with podcasts like this. So I think, obviously, like DigiDay is a podcast. All the other shared publications have podcasts and they're quite good. Yeah, I think you go there for different things. But one thing I find interesting is how we're seeing a lot of companies themselves and maybe even PR agencies starting up their own publications and right. trying to maybe not dress them up. That might be too strong a phrase, but try to present them as this is a standalone publication similar to the legacy ones that I've worked for over this last 10 years. And that's interesting. I think probably the most high-profile one in our space is the trade desks title called The Current. Right. We, we exposed them a couple of weeks ago. Just we PSA'd, we PSA'd our audience to, to note that it's not a real publication. Yeah, I'm not throwing shade on them necessarily. I mean, I'm, my old boss is the editor-in-chief. So, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting that we're starting to see that emerge. But then maybe we could argue when Google and Meta – They've have, they've been making press announcements through their blog, their like mysterious network blogs for years and years now. So maybe it's not that different. But that's just one thing I've noticed. Well, I appreciate you calling me the preeminent Twitterer. I, as far as I know, I, there are quite a few actual people in ad tech that have more followers than me. I think Jason Kent probably does, but I appreciate it. And the a good shout out to the Reddit AdOps Reddit because that's where you get all the bad news. That's that's where you see the like, hey, I haven't gotten paid in three months. What's going on? Posts that yeah. get quite popular. Well, the EMX flea mod. That's, that's EMX. Yep. Started to emerge. There's countless others. Hey, could could I jump in? Yeah. Um, how has people's like news diet changed over the course of the past five seven years? So you know, pre Reddit, Twitter, podcast, architecture, corporate media, so so on and so forth. It was you know people would you know go directly to Digiday or one of the other trade sites or get the email and then you know kind of kind of click away. Do you see people going to trade publications less? Like how is how has that evolved over over time? And you know, do, do you view these outlets as additive, as competitive, and you know, just has your strategy, frankly, as a reporter, changed at all? Mm, that's a really good question, Eric. 
Yeah, like I mentioned before, they're definitely competitive for attention, but I don't know if they're necessarily competitive for commercials. So, for instance, I don't think the AdOps Reddit community has like client executives like Digiday or other publications going and pitching, uh, say, some some of the companies in your portfolio for sponsorship and things like that. But uh, in terms of how people are going for things, definitely, yeah, you're hearing more and more people. Uh, let's just say back in 2013, when I first started covering ad tech specifically, yeah, you wouldn't hear of too many people saying, oh, yeah, let's just say uh, EMX is behind on its payments. I read it on Twitter or Reddit or right. what other platform. Um, it definitely would have been, oh, I read it in, you know, uh, Exchange or, you know, Etc. Etc. So yeah, definitely there's competition for breaking stories and scoops, etc. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I just have the luxury of just being able to focus on the work and not having to worry too much. It's not my day job to worry about the financials, but obviously the financials <laughs> do worry me ultimately because that's what signs my paychecks. So are are you using ChatGPT to do your job and then hanging out all day doing nothing? Like, do you just go to ChatGPT, like write me an article about how Google's screwing over publishers and then boom, submit? How do you know this is not an AI-generated version of me? Uh, (laughs) uh, But no, to your your question about have journalists started using AI? uh, Yeah, I've been using it for years. If you think of transcription tools, there's too many to mention, you know, the likes of Otter or... Temi, there are others. Those are just the two that I've experimented with. So yeah, we've been using that for workflow tools in terms of producing content. Not my day job, but I have done it with a few side hustles, which are literally just personal experiments with friends who are also journalists, just to see, okay, look, this stuff is not going to go away. We should toy around with it a little bit, maybe in our spare time, because it's a way of the, if you don't start writing it, it's going to crush you. Right. So, still very much test and learn. So you've been covering for ad tech for a long time. Uh, do you think it has a higher bullshit quotient than other industries? Like, because that's always what I hear is like, uh, you know, people don't understand it. It's a lot of jargon. Uh, press releases don't make any sense. Do you think it's the same in other industries or is it special? I think... I think so. I used to cover telecoms prior to ad tech, and that's really, really complicated like, super complicated. I remember the first time having to listen back to an interview before the days of uh, you know, transcription services, and uh, I heard the line hardline backbone infrastructure, and I almost cried because I was just like, I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> so, I think ad tech. Because essentially you're talking about trading, which is quite a gettable concept. I actually think once you dig past the BS, you listen to, you know, you read publications like the well-researched pieces in DigiDay or others are available, or, you know, you take out a market texture subscription and you, you get to hear experts like yourselves, Ari and Eric really dive deep into things, I think it's a bit easier to scratch the surface and really start to hit better after that. Right, right. Do, do you, it seems like it's also, ad tech in my experience has, has been, it's pretty chummy. Not to say that uh, reporters are, are not objective at all, but I, I don't know if other industries have as much 
socialization between reporters and the subjects as ad tech with its conferences and booziness and things like that. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Is that is that a problem or is it uh, or am I just reading into it? No, I have friends who were reporters in other industries and the same kind of things happens. It's like when you're a journalist, how else are you supposed to win the confidence of a source? Why you gotta have that uh, sort of bonding, that camaraderie, build up trust. It takes time, and uh, yeah, and it's not unique to this industry. I don't think, like I said, when I was covering telecoms, the parties weren't as glamorous in inverted commas. <laughs> um, they still happen. And by the way, if you think the New York scene is uh, you know boozy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you should try working in London. I worked there for many a long time. That's a lot more uh, sociable, shall we say. <laughs> I think I've hung out with you in London, and it's uh, it's dangerous. <laughs> so back to kind of ad tech. You know, one of the stories that um, seems to be brewing a lot, and I hear a lot on our sort of various Slack channels and whatnot, is the war between DSPs and SSPs, that there's kind of like this covert war going on right now uh, that hasn't been reported on that much. Uh, what are you hearing there? Yeah, it's it's definitely happening. It's been happening for years. I was actually talking about it yesterday with a co-worker, this exact, this exact thing. And um, we just sort of said, like, disintermediation is back. We, see, we saw this 10 years ago. So this time it's the DSPs and the SSPs in a land grab. But if you remember 10 years ago when I first started covering the space, the big debate was about media agencies and DSPs and the two of them fighting over who's going to get that direct access to the clients. I'm sure you both have a better upfront commentary about that period in history than I. I don't know if either of you would draw that analogy. Uh, yeah, we've, we've uh, even spoken about that in reference to that big insider article about uh, about media math, um, how it sort of how it was a battle, but um, it shook out in kind of ways that people didn't expect. I think the interesting thing about this DSP SSP conflict is that it was thought to be somewhat of a stable situation. I think where uh, there was a lot of consolidation, and there are now a handful of healthy DSPs and a handful of healthy SSPs, and they all knew their sort of place and role. And then Trade Desk sort of blew that open with their Open Path initiative, and it was a shot across the bow for many SSPs. That's at least. What I'm hearing, I don't know what's reality, but but I think that's the perception is that the SSPs feel like they're being attacked. I would definitely chime with what I'm hearing. I was actually speaking with a contact about this earlier in the week. And one point that they referenced was, if you think of when Open Path was announced, it was a little over a year back. And that was after the IPO trail of 2021 slash 2022 when we had a lot of ad tech companies list on the public markets. Okay, the Trade Desk has been public since, I believe, 2016, 2017. So they've been public for a while. But now we've got a lot of SSPs going onto the market. Now they have to show growth. So they got to go a little bit out of their own lanes or become a bit more enterprising is probably how they would put it. So, yeah, but to go back to the media math piece that was in Business Insider that you referenced, Ari, one thing I noticed was kind of like in that media math piece, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they said um, 
it kind of noted that MediaMath went client direct, whereas the trade desk went to media agencies. It seems that in this SPO 2.0, that the media agencies are kind of seen as power brokers again, because we now have the SSPs making those more direct relationships with the whole coast. So it just seems to be this very kind of, I don't know, some people are interpreting them as the kingmakers again. Yeah, it's interesting when there are SSP RFPs going out from agencies, it makes you scratch your head a little bit because those two groups usually are not directly connected. They're, there's a gap in the value chain where they have to jump over the DSP to get there. But those RFPs have been happening for several years, and it's an opportunity for the SSPs to try to differentiate in what's otherwise a commodity market. Yeah, I think if anybody questions whether or not this is this is real or not, last year, one of the large public SSPs, Pubmatic, acquired a DSP. Um, right. They they acquired Martin. So, you know, just validation right there that this whole thing is coming together. There's a lot of competition. You know, it's it's very clear. You, you wonder if that's going to happen more as there's, you know, there's still less, you know, uh, DSPs on the market, right? Yeah. Well, if you go down the list of the top SSPs, uh, Magnite, uh, when they bought SpotX, acquired a managed services group, not exactly a DSP, but a managed services group on the demand side. Um, you mentioned Pubmatic. In Europe, Smart Ad Server, whose name I can never remember the new name, they acquired a DSP. Google obviously owns DV360, and Xander has always had both sides of the equation, both monetize and invest. Would you count Three wheel as another example of that, just given you know how Comcast acquired your old co and you know yep. seems to be sort of like cl- closely connected to free wheel. So this is this is for real, folks. It is, it is, and so there are several SSPs we didn't mention, like I guess OpenX and Index, who don't have that that approach. But you never know. And meanwhile, on the DSP side, there are surprisingly few independent DSPs because most of them are now owned by a larger company, other than obviously the big exception being the trade desk. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, I just, I guess my question is like, where does it bear fruit? Like, where are the success stories of, you know, we're an SSP, we bought a DSP and suddenly our revenues are skyrocketing or we're offering products on the market nobody else has offered. Yeah. I think that's going to have to, that that's going to take time, right? It feels like we're in the middle of this very tense period, right, of, of competition and trying to figure out who is responsible for what. And to your point, the agency RFPs going to SSPs, I think, you know, you give it a, a year or two, all of a sudden, you might start to see some, you know, successes in retrospect. Yeah, totally. So this is a good transition to talking about some recent news because there was an interesting announcement this week that didn't get a lot of take up, um, which was that the company Sovereign, which operates sort of a ad server, CMS, SSP, a bunch of service hybrid of services for small publishers, they announced a 0% take rate. So it's pretty hard to beat them on price. Effectively, a 0% take rate means that they're bundling the SSP in with their other services. So the publishers pay them either a fee, a SaaS fee, or a rev share on their on their ad sales, and there's no separate SSP fee. I think it's really interesting if you think about SPO and the ability to avoid the fees going through the supply chains. It's hard to route around a zero percent fee. So, what do you guys think? Is this a trend, or is this just very specific to Sovereign because they they serve as a unique kind of small publisher clientele? I saw that press release go out earlier this week. I asked a few people about it, and 
I think it's a brave and one busy one I'm about to say is just reflecting what they told me. But I think it's a brave first step. And it's maybe it's a little bit counterintuitive because publishers paying an extra SAS fee, uh, it's probably a little bit uh, strange, a bit much to ask for them because typically from their ad tech vendors, they not want to partner with them to generate cash, not take more cash from them. I know, obviously, it's like, look, you got to spend this money to make more money is probably what the pitch would be. But, you know, in case you hadn't heard, publishers are under some hard times uh, as of late. And so every every cent counts. So I think it might be a bit of a tough sell. But um, from what I can say from my other reporting is that there are other SSPs starting to float this idea of, hey, you pay us a bit of a subscription fee and we'll include you, you know, we'll bump you up on the demand chart. So um, yeah, there are other SSPs starting to make noises about this. I can tell you that from some of my early stage reporting. Interesting. I think this, yeah, I, I think this is cool. I, I give these guys a, a lot of credit for being aggressive, you know, like investing in product marketing and trying to, you know, put, put a little bit of a, a shot across the bow in, in the industry um, as a result. Uh, I think the reality is the customers that are using, um, you know, the first subset of customers that are going to be, you know, enjoying 0% take rate, they're probably, you know, core sovereign customers that are paying for everything else. And the math works out for, for sovereign. I think the, the real thing to watch here and then for others is look, the reality of the, you know, core SSP business, right? The, the take rate business, um, is commoditized. And, you know, SSPs need to provide more services, more technology, more value over time to publishers to, um, to, to sort of you know, kind of continue to, to evolve and grow and, and be successful. So to the extent that this can become like a real enterprise offering, the SSP business as a whole, to the extent that it can become a real enterprise offering and they can, you know, do the math and show how everything that we does for you results in this ROI, right? So you should certainly uh, sign up and, and pay for our, our, our software. And oh, by the way, you get the SSP, right? The, the core for, for free. Um, I think it could just become the future of the SSP business where, you know, it gets sunsetted into, you know, just a kind of a cost of doing business and the SSPs have more offerings for publishers, which I think the then downstream effect is SSPs need to develop new capabilities for publishers or acquire new capabilities for publishers and further differentiate. Yeah, I think it's kind of tricky. So there definitely is a pattern of publishers being willing to pay for, say, header bidding optimization. So companies like Hashtag Labs, which we featured on Architecture TV, are pretty interesting, and they, they go after that kind of middle-level publisher. We had on this podcast Cafe Media talking about how they offer services for publishers, that, and they could get paid that way. But if you're a mainline SSP, like an OpenX, Magnite, Pubmatic, and you try to switch one of your customers from percentage to flat, you're probably not doing anyone a favor because the publisher's still going to look at net revenue at the end of the day, and they're going to probably do things to get that money back, like raise their floors on your exchange, um, and you'll net out at the same place you started. So I think it, it all has to do with a larger value proposition than just exchange that you, exactly. and then kind of figuring out the way the fees can make sense. Yep, exactly, exactly. Which again, I think points to uh, we're we're at a moment where the SSP evolves, and it's you know unclear at this point what what this looks like in two to three years. But I think it looks 
different. And it starts with the conversation we had earlier about them aggressively pushing into the demand side and agency RFPs and so on and so forth. And not to obsess with Jeff Green, but I believe he's been quoted as saying he thinks the SSP market should be a SaaS business. Um, maybe I, I have, I'm misremembering, but I know someone told me he said that. I, I should Google it. Um, that makes sense. It makes sense. Especially for him. It makes a lot of sense for him. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you both, what do you think of Open Path? Do you think it's an SSP or do you think it is just the... Uh dumb pipes that uh, the trade desk, you know, that's how they position it. Never talked about that SSP, DSP battle. I think from the perspective of the trade desk being the largest or the second largest trading partner with each publisher, it makes sense for them to disintermediate the SSP on that relationship because the value add of the SSP is really de minimis when there's a connection like that, a relationship like that. You have billing, you have fraud detection, you have some levers you can pull. But since we moved from second price auction to first price auction, the SSP has very little to do with yield management because they don't change the price very much. So it's just a matter of swapping out one set of values for another. So I think the answer in short is yes, it's competitive to SSPs. Interesting. Uh, Eric, I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Agree. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I agree. It makes, it makes sense, which is why we're having this conversation, right? <laughs> and, you know, that it doesn't apply to DSPs number three through 10, and it doesn't really apply very well to video. There's a lot of areas where it applies much less. But for banner ads on a website that's already a big supplier of the trade desk, sure, it makes total sense. It's surprising it didn't happen sooner. All right. So uh, while we're on the news, let's talk about follow up from previous episodes. So I think we're on the third week in a row we're discussing this. <laughs> so uh, or maybe the second week. So last week uh, we were trying to guesstimate the amount of TikTok revenue in the U.S. And uh, I think we said it was somewhere in the four ish range. And then on Twitter, we followed up where our friend of the pod, uh, Brian Weiser, said that he thinks it was around four billion in 2020 and tracking towards five or six this year. We're talking about U.S. TikTok ad revenue. And then our other friend of the pod, Eric Suford, who's also a contributor to Marketecture, he posted an excellent blog post on his mobile dev memo, estimating it between 4.4 and 5.9 billion in the U.S., also, an interesting side note to Eric's post is that just in-app purchases on TikTok, which is basically like tipping, is on a billion-dollar run rate in the U.S. Uh, so that's crazy uh, that people tip more on TikTok than the entire revenue base of, tic- of Twitter. <laughs> uh, so those, uh, I just want to share some of those numbers. And then Insider Intelligence, Ronan, you, you added this to show notes, is saying $36 billion globally. But that's probably all ByteDance, I would guess. The, the number's too big to just be TikTok. Well, so, I dug down a little deeper, was able to get some of the U.S. revenues breakdown from TikTok, if that helps confuse things any further. <laughs> Is it around yes. that consensus number, around five-ish? Uh, yeah, so pardon me, I'm just going to reel them off. I just got them in literally minutes ago. So it's a 6.83 billion U.S. ad revenues for TikTok 2023, and then that is projected to grow 2.8% you know, 2024, whenever they think it will amount to 8.62. So that's insider intelligence at 6.8 in 23. 
Uh, yes. Correct. Okay. Interesting. So that's above the other two estimates we've gotten. Honestly, I would, if I had to bet money, I would take Eric's estimate. He lives and dies this stuff. Uh, so Eric, <laughs> Eric was four point four to five point nine. So um, that's a lot of money, a lot of advertising that needs to go somewhere else if TikTok gets banned. That's for sure. But um, I guess we'll have to wait and see where it ends up. Yeah. Now that we're a week post the hearings, which. Uh, you know, just really seemed like a, a, a difficult one for uh, for the TikTok CEO. What's the general consensus out there on, you know, if this is going to get banned or not? I don't know what the consensus is, but I know that uh, a bill was introduced after that hearing that was very invasive and gave the government very broad powers to regulate all kinds of technology. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of a backlash at how broad the legislation looking at the problem were. Um, AOC, uh, everyone's favorite congressperson or, or not, uh, she made an impassioned appeal um, on TikTok to not ban it and to rather pursue federal privacy law, which is my position as well. And I think I think most thinking people who've thought about this problem realize the core problem is the lack of a federal privacy law, or at least that's such an important problem that that should be addressed before the TikTok problem. But that's all I've heard. Oh, and my other favorite person, Jason Calacanis, on his uh, This Week in Startups podcast sort of misrepresented what AOC said and threw a lot of uh, both sidism and muddying the waters in order to make his case that TikTok should be banned. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's it's so interesting. So there's the, I think, very practical, there, there needs to be a regulatory framework around this, A, right, which, which I, I agree with. But then it just ladders up to all of these other you know, bigger categories, bigger conversations. And, you know, the, the one thing is everybody can be allowed in the U.S., right, in terms of, you know, businesses and apps and so on and so forth. But, you know, no U.S. companies are allowed to operate their business, you know, freely in, um, in, in China. Um, so I think there's that dynamic here that certainly won't resolve in the U.S.'s favor with respect to Facebook, Google, so on and so forth, or Meta, Google, so on and so forth, being, up, being able to operate in China. But I feel like that's a big thing here that could end up having some sort of an impact or, or not. It's super fascinating. I personally don't use TikTok, so zero, zero impact on me. You're not, you don't even view TikTok? No, no, I've never downloaded the app. Uh, it's fun. Uh, Ronan, are you, uh, are you dancing your ass off on TikTok? Should we be following you? No, I mean, I've just, uh, had my work Twitter account deleted through for forceful measures. (laughs) (laughs) You told, you told me about this. There are a series of unfortunate accidents. Ronan is no longer on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, I will basically, for those who are interested, I, uh, deactivated my account just whenever Elon took over and, Twitter just descended into people talking about Twitter on Twitter. I was right. like, oh, I've had enough of this. So I deactivated my account. Then um, my registered email address was my old walk email address, which I no longer had access to. And I was like, oh, I better get back on it. And then whenever I sent the email off, like, hey, I want to, like, you know, reactivate my account, he fired everybody that could have helped me. <laughs> And then by the time I like reorganized the team, it had gone 31 days already. <laughs> my account was deleted. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, so what are you doing? Are, are you starting from zero? Can we, can we give a plug to your new Twitter or, or, no, or do no. you want to start one and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes? We'll help you out. I think here. it gave up. 
I give up. I mean, I do have one, but honestly, if you want to, don't follow it unless you want to hear about um, Irish Gaelic football or rugby or Manchester United. That's all you're going to get. Sorry. So the future, you have to go with Eric to the Tesla dealership when he's fixing his visor and like ask the guy there if he can reinstate your Twitter account. In the future, they'll just be these Elon Musk-centered service centers in every municipal area where we'll check in to get our uh, universal basic income and fix our Teslas. The future is bright, yes. Um, All right, let's talk about my favorite story that keeps coming up, which is European publishers whinging about their data being stolen. Did I use whinging correct? Is that uh, the proper usage of that, Ronan? It was contextually accurate, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, Ronan, do you want to explain the story to us? Yeah, so this is a long-running theme, and this is the Association of Online Publishers. It's kind of difficult to think of a comparative body here in North America. Forgive me, um, what is Jason Kent's organization again? Yeah, the anti-Google IAB, whatever. (laughs) I forget what it's called. DCM. DCM. (laughs) Yeah, um, so they're broadly an equivalent of them. It's a trade body for legacy publishers and... Earlier this week, they wrote an open letter complaining about, well, I think the way they phrased it was advertisers stealing publishers' data and IP, etc., etc. I think, though, if you're probably listening to this podcast, you probably know that what they're actually complaining about is ad tech vendors that are being, that are crawling their websites, stealing, in their words, their words, contextual data from them. And yeah, they wrote an open letter complaining about it. Yeah, if you've been following this for a long time, like I have, we've seen this movie before. Ari, when you mentioned it to me, it reminded me of a marketing brew story literally 12 months ago where they wrote a letter, where the AOP wrote a letter to its members, you know, complaining that they, uh, well, encouraging them to complain more about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've been here before. I think this is a ploy maybe to try and get the competition authorities in the UK, the Competition Markets Authority, to maybe be a bit more proactive. Obviously, they've been proactive in governing Google's privacy sandbox. So maybe they're thinking they'll um, repeat the trick for them. Yeah, this kind of goes into the same bucket as Google should pay us to put links to our sites on their news site, which has been a battle that's actually been won by publishers in some jurisdictions like Australia. But this started out, actually, if I remember correctly, the first time this came out was maybe like six months ago, maybe a year, I can't remember. And they were specifically upset about companies like Integral Ad Science and Double Verify who would both run verification campaigns on their on their site and then also sell contextual data pre-bid such that they were kind of double dipping and charging advertisers in order to reach the context they then measured and that uh struck me it was an interesting argument because although i feel the contextual data is is you know fair use you could anyone can spider a website and create a contextual database there was a bit of a conflict of interest being on both sides of a transaction and then in their newer whinging 
this week, they seem to be a little more focused on kind of data skimming off of forms and header bidding and other things like that. They made some allegations about data stealing. Am I am I getting that right? More or less, yeah. And I mean, look, fair play to Richard Reeves, uh, who's the chairman of the AOP and everybody over there. I've worked for publishers all my career. Good luck in your endeavors, but I mean, I don't know if this will materially impact things. You know, it's just right. Sucks to work in the uh, in the internet era. Uh, that's about my two cents worth. Yeah, I mean, like if you put out a website and you don't put a robots.txt, it's fair game. That that's been the rules of the road around the world, not just in the U.S. It's around the world for thirty years. It seems like publishers continue to wake up in the morning and think it's wrong in different ways, but their a lot of their traffic is totally dependent on it. All right, another story. So this wasn't covered very much um, because it's a bit of a retread, but the Senate, again, put out the text of a bill around competition. So it's the Competition and Transparency in Digital Advertising Act was put out by uh, Senator Lee from Utah. This came out, I believe, in the last Senate session. It's a very aggressive bill. Um, It would require Google to dispense of its ad exchange. It would require various parties with minimum amounts of revenue flowing through them to act as fair brokers in transactions on ad exchanges. It has quite a bit of regulation around how ad exchanges and buyers need to interact and uh, I, I was just skimming through. I did not read the whole thing. It's very long and complicated. I, I just skimmed through it. And it goes down to the detail that all participants in RTB auctions need to have synchronized timestamps, according to the National, um, I guess this is the National uh, Science Foundation has the, has the universal atomic clock. So it goes down to that level, presumably to better facilitate log matching because everyone needs the same timestamp. Um any is there any buzz around this or is this just you know let's wait and see if the senate can get its act together yeah well i sat in on a briefing session the day prior to its announcement uh with uh, senator lee and it was interesting i started asking them well, okay you know this is you know very ambitious congratulations on your ambition but you know this is the government versus the likes of google and Meta were the two that they called out specifically because they're the two biggest, although they did also name check Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft as like three other companies that they were going to watch. So, yeah, when I asked them, I was like, oh, you know, how sure are you sure you know what you're doing here that you can do what you said you will? And they're like, oh, yeah, we spoke to experts about it. But I don't know. When you look at what <laughs> was, yeah, I just don't know that they're going to. Oh, fantastic. What's the goal of this? Uh, the goal is to take down Google. Uh, in my opinion, like that is the goal. The goal, uh, the bill literally has provisions that the following pr- provisions will only apply to companies with over twenty billion in exchange-based advertising, and there's only one company that right. qualifies. That was specifically because I just wrote a piece about this. Specifically, that twenty billion threshold was if you get more than that annually, you'll have to divest. So yeah, good point. Google, but then there was an additional five billion thresholds whereby companies would have to more specifically disclose that they operate on multiple sides of the market so that we effectively double dip. Although they didn't go into too much detail as to what kind of disclosures the act or the proposals would require when I asked them. So, uh, yeah, just a little bit more detail though. 
Yeah, the five billion threshold would would probably snare the trade desk and maybe App Levin. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if it would get Magnite in that level. I don't know what the latest number is on their total media volume, but it'd be pretty limited who it would affect. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're you're totally right. It is Google that they're going after. But uh, to the point I was trying to make earlier, I just hope that this one is done well because if we go to GDPR, and that was an attempt to take down Google when you know the other cohorts, big tech giants that dominate the industry, and then what did GDPR do? It actually benefited them in the end because it's yeah. so poorly thought out. And yeah, so I just hope that this time. If it does come to pass, uh, you know, through the colonies of power, that it will actually be effective. It would seem. And, and it was co-sponsored by Amy Klobuchar on the Democratic side, who is a pretty strong advocate for antitrust. She even wrote a book about antitrust, so she's she's pretty focused on that. You know, I think politics aside, it, it's a worrisome development when Washington gets involved in these really complex issues. Um, yeah. When, as we said earlier, they still haven't solved the the privacy problem, which I think has got universal acceptance that it needs a solution. Agreed. Um, hey, what, one one thing that uh, was not in in the doc to uh, to prep for this, but I thought was was pretty fascinating. Curious if if you both read it. Um, if not, I'll, I'll make a recommendation. Was uh, the semaphore? And by the way, this is the first article I've read on semaphore since they launched, and it was really good. The semaphore story about how OpenAI became a for profit company. Right, I read that. That was fascinating. Ronan, did you read it? I did not read that, but I'd be more than interested to hear both your thoughts while we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll try to you know, give the brief bullet points on it. So OpenAI starts as a not-for-profit with a pledge of a billion dollars to you know invest in, in in the endeavor. Over time, one of the you know key uh, board members and investors, Elon Musk, um, begum, becomes to get uh, concerned that Google was lapping OpenAI in terms of you know open. You AI innovation proposed to take over the company. The rest of OpenAI allegedly pushed back, said no. Elon uh, Musk says, okay, I'm going to start my own AI company. Um, I'm not going to uh, support this uh, any longer. That leaves OpenAI in uh, a precarious position because, as we know, these large language models are extremely expensive to operate in terms of the compute cost. Uh, so they decide to create a for-profit company um, and raise capital to, uh, you know, ultimately be able to uh, support the cost of doing it. And then, you know, they, they hit this incredible uh, growth trajectory and, you know, le- released ChatGPT, and, and now it, it's on a it's on a tear and got a billion dollar investment from Microsoft, uh, so on and so forth. Um, one of the interesting nuggets that I saw that you know continues to just like blow me away and. I think it's a good thing, but maybe it's not a good thing over time. And this is where we can have a conversation is Sam Altman, um, who's the you know founder and CEO at OpenAI, uh, has no equity in the business on a go forward basis. Uh, they, they raised from other investors, those other investors, because presumably this business is probably the one uh, you know, not public company that has a chance to become a trillion dollar company that we, we're, we're all aware of. Um, the other investors, their returns are capped. Um, at 100x, I believe. Yeah. Sam Altman said, hey, I got enough money. I'm good. I'm doing this because I believe in this. Um, I don't need any equity in what will probably be the most valuable startup 
you know, of, of this generation. So, um, so it's like, A, wow, awesome, Sam. <clears throat> and he's so impressive. Um, but then B, does that somewhat misalign in sentence? <laughs> like, you know, you want him to have a meaningful stake in the success of this because he is just so great and so talented. Um, and I think having him on this is going to be crucial. So that's the summary and, you know, my, my thoughts on it. It was a fascinating story. The maximum payout um, was part of the bargain to switch from the nonprofit to the profit. So right. what that means is that if OpenAI is actually you know a trillion dollar company, that means the nonprofit, which still exists, is going to get the bulk of that value. So you could end up creating the world's largest nonprofit or best paid, best funded nonprofit. Um, right. And that nonprofit's main goal will be to prevent AI from taking over the world, presumably. Um, and if you have a complaint, the only thing you can do is go down to the Elon Musk service center in your neighborhood and file a ticket. <laughs> anyway, that's the story, Ronan. Um, it's still it's still worth reading because it's 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 very well done, but it's uh, it's it's pretty wild. Um, that Finley showed us. Thank you. Semaphore is awesome. That's just a, another free pitch. Uh, remember, if you want to advertise on this podcast, pay us. But if you don't, just get on our good side and we'll mention how much we like your products. All right, let's call it. Um, Ronan, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, yes, Thanks, Ronan. You do it. Great show. Eric, always a pleasure. You got it. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for listening. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.